If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The Battle of Britain has gone down in history as an epic dogfight between the RAF and the Luftwaffe. One where Britain faced overwhelming odds and the threat of an almost inevitable invasion. However, according to Dr Victoria Taylor, this wasn't exactly the case. In today's Everything You Want to Know episode, she answers your top questions on the subject in conversation with Emily Briffitt, unpicking some of the most enduring myths surrounding the iconic aerial battle. Hi, Victoria. Thank you so, so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to delve into the Battle of Britain today. And as you say, we are delving into the Battle of Britain with lots of listener questions. So I think we need to really situate ourselves. What was the Battle of Britain? The Battle of Britain was a major aerial campaign that took place between the 10th of July 1940 and the 31st of October 1940. And this saw the German Luftwaffe attempting to force Britain to sue for peace by attacking the RAF's fighter command. Now, the Germans were not necessarily wanting to go into a full-scale amphibious invasion, which it had called Operation Sea Lion. But on the other hand, it did have the fear that it would have to carry this out because of the fact that the British were not budging. So, of course, by this point in the war, Poland has been occupied by the Germans in the autumn of 1939. Then we get Operation Übung, which is the occupation of Norway and Denmark, capture of Belgium, of Holland, of Luxembourg, of France uh, for the Allies by the summer of 1940. So the Battle of Britain comes about because of the fact that Britain is the official last bastion of resistance in Europe. Of course, it has gained lots of different pilots from the occupied countries, so the Free French, the Polish, the Czechoslovakians. But ultimately, it really is the last sort of stalwart of Allied defence, and the Luftwaffe is trying to crack it open by attacking RAF fighter bases, by attacking aircraft component factories, and of course going for Allied shipping. Now, I think there's a little bit of a difference in dating between perhaps us here in Britain, in the UK, and in Germany. Why is this? The difference in dates between Britain and Germany comes about from the official histories and ultimately what each side was trying to achieve. So in Britain, the dates are set from the 10th of July 1940 up until the 31st of October 1940. And this was set by Air Chief Marshal Sir Hugh Dowding in his dispatches. So he felt that that was the main phase for the RAF and it's sort of the main era of the Battle of Britain, the main thrust of it, in which the RAF is kept at its most busy. 
The reason this is different for the Germans is that their strategy is different. So ultimately, the Battle of Britain comes about because the Germans have seen that Britain is not suing for peace. And they're hoping to make sure that by putting pressure on Britain, either threatening a blockade um, through attacking Allied shipping with the Luftwaffe or indeed through the bombing of, of RAF installations, it's hoping that peace at the negotiating table can be achieved. And so as a result, the Germans go for this offensive, which is known as the Luftschlacht um England, and this is the air battle for England. They start more towards the end of June 1940, when they start going more intensely for British shipping in the Channel. And they do actually see the Blitz, which we think of from sort of around September 1940 until the end of May 1941. They see that as part of this same air battle for England. So that's why their dates are a little different, because at the end of the day, you know, it's very understandable that the RAF would see the Blitz as being a separate, distinct operational challenge. But for the Germans, it hasn't really changed much. They're still trying to pummel Britain into surrender. And I think we're going to be talking a little bit about this aspect of civilian bombing as well later. But first, I guess we should probably ask, can you just chart some of the key events in the timeline? There are a number of distinct phases if you're going from the British interpretation of the Battle of Britain, where you see a swing in momentum from one side to the other. So we tend to chart the Battle of Britain as starting in the Kanalkampf or the Channel Battle phase, which is from around early July up to about mid-August. And this is the first phase where the Luftwaffe is really sort of hammering away Allied shipping in the Channel and in some of its other sea routes because of course, we've got the Battle Atlantic raging at the same time. And they're hoping that this will be enough to show the British that they are serious and that they shouldn't be messed with. And of course, that in conjunction with the U-boat menace means that, you know, they're really hoping to get Britain to behave in a similar way to Denmark in April 1940, which was pretty much, do you know what, we're not even going to try, we're just going to accept the cards that have been dealt to us. But this is the thing, it's kind of... They start that phase, but then they realise that it's not particularly having the impact that they need. And so the second phase of the Battle of Britain, which perhaps is talked about the most, is the Adler Angriff, or the Eagle Attack. And this takes place on Adler Tag, or Eagle Day, on the 13th of August 1940. And ultimately, it's this absolutely colossal armada of Luftwaffe aircraft that have been gathered, and they go for the RAF's throat, ultimately. So they are going for aircraft factories, they are going for RAF and fleet air arm stations, radar installations, all of these different aspects of the RAF's defence system in order to make sure that it is breaking it down and trying to wear it down completely for the potential of Operation Sea Lion. So that is the main second phase. The third phase is where it looks the bleakest for the RAF. So this is kind of after the Eagle attack, which is variable in its results, the Luftwaffe starts to really get more streamlined in its attacks. It starts to really hit home more on RAF airfields. And this is the point where really the RAF is at its most groggy on the ropes, is towards the end of August 1940 and into early September. So that phase is sort of the phase where the RAF was perhaps at its most acute danger. 
But of course, history has a different plan and we get a change in the offensive and we start moving towards the fourth phase of the Battle of Britain, which is, of course, the Blitz. So we start to get this phase where Goering shifts his attention away as commander-in-chief of the Luftwaffe from RAF airfields and installations. You know, he's impatient with attacking radar. He says on the 15th of August, 1940, that so far nothing's been put out of action in terms of radar. And he moves towards trying to bomb British cities instead and trying to force the decision there. But of course, that has often been seen as one of the pivotal points of the Battle of Britain, where ultimately the Germans split their focus, their interest, and the British take advantage and capitalise on that. I've got a question here from Daniel Wigmore on Facebook, who's asked about how British strategy changed over time in response to this shift. Mm hmm. I would say that it is more of the tactics that change more dramatically than the strategy. So the British strategy in the Battle of Britain is relatively straightforward. It's trying to go straight to the bombers because ultimately it's their payloads that are going to put RAF aircraft, air factories and airfields out of action. So the idea is that the RAF is going to try and get its fighters straight into the bomber streams to disrupt their formations, to make sure that they are off target, off kilter. But Fighter Command starts to develop this idea of thinking about having Spitfires, which are a bit faster than Hurricane fighters. They are intended to engage with the BF-109s, you know, their faster counterparts. And then the Hurricanes are meant to be going in and getting the bombers and their closer escorts. Now, this isn't really implemented as much as, you know, certain individuals within Fighter Command wanted to have. But at the end of the day, there is still this solid strategy of trying to go straight for the bombers in order to make sure that they are not hitting the airfields. Where there's more of a change is in tactics. So the Luftwaffe have already gained a lot of operational experience in the Spanish Civil War, which takes place between 1936 and 1939. And their Condor Legion helps to look into expanding German air doctrine and strategy and tactics. And the main tactic they learn from there, which is relevant to the Battle of Britain, is that they fly in what's known as a schwarm or a swarm. This sees the pilots flying as a rotter, as a pair, and they sort of fly pretty much in a staggered formation, so two in the front, two in the back. And as a result, this allows for a lot more flexibility because if your fighters suddenly have to peel off or if your fighters are trying to keep an eye out for any incoming enemy bandits, then as a result, when they peel off, they're not going to slam into each other. And the British had this kind of issue with fighter tactics because they flew in a traditional Vic formation, which was three aircraft, one sort of as an arrowhead and two at the sides. But they were very much trapped within these formations. And of course, if you're veering off to the right and your wingman is veering off to the left, you know, you're going to have a, a pretty hairy situation. So in terms of British fighter strategy, the goal remained relatively consistent, you know, but in terms of the actual tactics, they really had to modernise. And in fact, it does take quite a long time for them to adopt what is later known as the finger four formation, which is similar to the Schwarm. But, you know, they get there and they sort of, there's a lot of squadrons in, in fighter command that are already unofficially adopting this. Because at the end of the day, even though it's not, you know, codified in RAF rules at that point, they have to adapt to the situation in real time. And so really, it's more of a change 
in fighter tactics there, but also it throws up questions of deployment of strength. So one of the really big controversies of the Battle of Britain is the big wing formation, which is spearheaded by Douglas Bader. And this is the idea that you throw up, you know, mass formations of Spitfires and Hurricanes in order to have that real psychological effect on the Germans. But individuals like Dowding, for instance, are far more conservative in their numbers. And they are not so much a fan of this strategy because they are scared that they're going to be frittering Spitfires and Hurricanes left, right and centre, as well as the fact that it does take more time to scramble that many squadrons. So, yeah, I think in terms of a fighter strategy, it stays relatively consistent, but fighter tactics have to change pretty much on the daily. So how accurate is the narrative that Spitfires and Hurricanes were the heroes of the Battle of Britain? It's indisputable that the Hurricanes and the Spitfires are the heroes of the Battle of Britain. You know, they are incredibly inspiring to the people below. And of course, British civilians aren't meant to be out in an active combat zone looking at the aircraft up above. But you would do. I mean, it would be absolutely enthralling to go watch, even if it's terrifying as well. And so... They help to inspire the next generation of RAF pilots who also want to be fighter pilots. You also have the fact that, you know, they are a menace to the BF-109 psychologically, particularly the Spitfire. And in some ways, the Hurricane perhaps is even a little bit more heroic in terms of the fact that the Germans often felt that the Hurricane wasn't particularly on a level with the BF-109, they felt that it was a little bit slower, it wasn't as manoeuvrable, and they weren't as afraid of it as they were of the Spitfire. But the fact that the Hurricane is so successful in the Battle of Britain that it's able to account for vastly greater numbers of kills, even though, of course, more Hurricanes are deployed, it does show that it can hold its own with the BF-109 in the Battle of Britain, even though the odds are slightly stacked against them compared to the pilots of the aerodynamic Spitfire. But for me personally, I think that even though, of course, the Hurricane and Spitfire pilots are heroes in their own right, for me, my kind of sneaking admiration is for the crews of Bolton Paul Defiance, of Blenheims, all of those sort of aircraft that really are obsolete by 1940. I mean, you look at the Hurricane and even more so the Spitfire, they've got a lot of legs on them. They've got a lot of durability and they can develop as the war develops. Whereas the men that are going up in Blenheims and Bolton Paul Defiance, you know, they are really flying death traps. But at the end of the day, they are trying to make it work. So even though we do need to give the Spitfire and the Hurricane their kudos, I think it's incredible important to remember the crews of the Defiance and the Blenheims as well. And just a quick one, how matched can we say that British crews were with the German crews and the German planes? Overall, the aircraft that were deployed by the RAF and the Luftwaffe in the Battle of Britain, particularly with fighter aircraft, is pretty much even. So a fairer comparison is perhaps the Spitfire and the BF-109, because really there wasn't an awful lot between them. The BF-109 had a stronger firepower. At certain points, it had a better rate of climb. And also, it was very much a great fighter at higher altitudes. But the key thing is, is that the Battle of Britain was mainly fought at about 20,000 feet and below. And that's when the Spitfire and the Hurricane start to come into their own. And of course, the, the Spitfire and the Hurricane have their own benefits and advantages. So the Spitfire, for instance, is very aerodynamic with its elliptical wings. You know, it's very much manoeuvrable. 
The Hurricane is not as manoeuvrable, but it does have a better, more solid gun platform. And so those elements are really helpful for them. Hurricanes are easier to repair than Spitfires, which take a little bit more specialist work. And so Hurricanes could easily be patched up and thrown up in a way that Spitfires couldn't always so much. BF-109s very much had the advantage of having the Daimler-Benz 601 engines. So these are fuel-injected, and this keeps an aircraft in the fight for longer because ultimately it's not spluttering against the G-forces. It's able to stay in the fight. Whereas the issue with the Merlin engines on Spitfires and Hurricanes is that fuel would flood the carburettor and it could cut out, you know, the, the engine could cut out. And that is exactly not what you want in the middle of a dogfight. So in terms of actual comparison, BF-109s pack a bit more of a punch. I think that Spitfires are a little bit more manoeuvrable. But ultimately, when you put all of those factors together, they are pretty much evenly matched technologically. And we also shouldn't discount the Hurricanes as well because, you know, the Germans had this real Spitfire snobbery. If they ever got shot down, they wanted it to be a Spitfire. And they would sometimes delude themselves and even speak to Hurricane pilots that were saying, no, it's definitely me that shot you down, dear boy. And the Germans felt like it was a wound to the ego if they were shot down by a Hurricane, which they saw as inferior to a BF-109 than if they were shot down by a Spitfire. So you've spoken about how it wasn't just about the aircraft itself, but it was actually about the skill of the crew, the skill of the pilots. When we think of the Battle of Britain, particularly in Britain, we often think of Churchill's speech about the few. How few were the few? Were the RAF really that outnumbered? The RAF do start off outnumbered, but it depends on how you define outnumbered. So it's very common for people to look at the fact that the Luftwaffe was going to be wielding, you know, over 2,000 aircraft and the British have only got about 640 operational fighters to start with. And for the Luftwaffe, it's about 1,011. When you see that difference, it's very easy to see it as oh my goodness, this was a real David versus Goliath battle. And, you know, there is a bit of discrepancy in fighter pilots at the beginning as well. The Luftwaffe's got uh, about 1,450 fighter pilots. The RAF has got 1,103. So there are some discrepancies to start with. But what's incredibly important is that it's so common for people to say, oh, you know, Britain is outnumbered four to one in aircraft. And yes, the Luftwaffe does have more aircraft, but it depends on the aircraft that is being deployed. So, of course, when you look at, say, a lumbering Heinkel HE-111 bomber or a Dornier 17 against a super fast Spitfire, you see that suddenly the odds start to kind of go up against each other. And, you know, there are points where bombers do have to go over and they aren't escorted or can't have as many fighters as they want to. So it's very simplistic to just sort of say it was outnumbered in terms of when we go into those real sort of heavy odds. And indeed, in terms of actual aircraft, the RAF, or more specifically, the Ministry of Aircraft Production, really ramp up the numbers. And so when you go into August, both Fighter Command and the Luftwaffe are more at about a 1,000 operational fighters apiece. So 
yes, to some degree, there is an initial outnumbering. But the thing is, is that the Germans get a little bit complacent with their aircraft production and also with their training, because at the end of the day, they feel that they've had all of these successes on continental Europe. And so there's not the same kind of urgency as there is in Britain to defend the island with sufficient numbers. And of course, you know, Britain has been careful in conserving all of its resources as far as possible for what it called the Metropolitan Air Force, which was kept for home defence, the squadrons that were not meant to be sent abroad. So in terms of actual numbers, yes, there's a slight skewing in British aircraft versus German aircraft, but the gap is made up very, very quickly. And when we get into the real heart of the Battle of Britain, they are pretty much even in the aircraft that need to be deployed for those parts of the campaign. This is a question we've had from Talking Sports 4 on Twitter. We now are starting to hear more about pilots who fought alongside the RAF, who were from outside of Britain or were perhaps from occupied territories in Europe. What sort of number are we talking about and what do we know about their experiences? There are 3,000 pilots that take part in the Battle of Britain as part of Fighter Command. And up to a fifth or 20% were not from Britain. So the majority of these men came from the Commonwealth, so from Australia, from New Zealand, from Canada, all of these other different countries. And another good chunk came from the occupied countries in Europe. So the Free French, the Polish, the Czechoslovakians, all of those different pilots also had come to Britain and, of course, had had real fierce combat experience in trying to defend their homelands against the Luftwaffe. So they were coming over to Britain, obviously in some cases with a language barrier, which caused frustration on both sides. But ultimately, their skills were put to the test in the Battle of Britain and they were absolutely invaluable for the RAF because at the end of the day, men like the Polish fighter pilots were particularly vengeful, understandably, and they were also excellently trained despite everything that had happened and all of the issues that they had encountered along the way. So really, support from other countries is incredibly important to recognise because for the longest time, there was the myth that Britain stood alone. And then eventually this was expanded a little bit more to Britain stood alone with its Commonwealth. And then eventually we've got to the point where actually, you know, we need to recognise those international contributions. But it stands out very starkly as well as, uh, you know, an act of unity and defence and defiance because... The Luftwaffe is mainly German pilots. There are, of course, Austrian pilots in there that have been absorbed after the the Anschluss, the annexation of Austria. There's the occasional Swiss German. And there's also a group of Italian aviators that take part in the Battle of Britain. But that's incredibly disastrous for them. They're known as the Corpo Aereo Italiano, and they are an expeditionary force as part of the Italian's uh, Regia Aeronautica. But they don't particularly do well. And of course, during the Battle of Britain, tensions are running high between Italy and Germany because there is the fear of needing to try and watch what's happening in North Africa as well as what's happening in Northwestern Europe. So there isn't the same kind of unity and collective cause in a way that you see that is so powerful with the RAF's fighter command during the Battle of Britain. While we're speaking about busting myths... Is the narrative of limited flying training true? As part of this, as a second question, David H. Simmons on Instagram has asked about the average age of the pilots who fought in the Battle of Britain. 
The average age of RAF pilots in fighter command during the Battle of Britain was just 20. So incredibly young. And of course, in many cases, some of the airmen have not had a lot of operational experience and they're not benefiting from the knowledge of their commanders so much either because they have only got really the last part of 1939 and the early part of 1940 to go on. Whereas the Luftwaffe, there is a difference of experience because of what they've learned in the Spanish Civil War. Although we shouldn't really overstate that too much because even in the Battle of France, for instance, the Luftwaffe is starting to lose some of its most experienced personnel. And so they too are also of a similar age to the men in fighter command. But thinking on a personal level, And if everyone casts their mind to when they were 20 and you think about, okay, your reflexes are at their absolute highest, your energy is at its highest, your concentration is at its highest, but you also have your recklessness, your impulsiveness at its highest in your your early 20s. I mean, at the end of the day, your prefrontal cortex has not fully developed. And so this is a real challenge for any commanders to be trying to take control of is these young, keen, talented men, but trying to rein it in in such a way that they are going to live to see another day. Training hours in the Battle of Britain tends to be one of the biggest myths of the campaign. So it's often reported that fighter command pilots only had 20 hours flying time, flight hours, in order to be up in the air. Now, this isn't quite accurate. Normally, what that sort of 20 hours is referring to is the time they would have had on the fighters that they were flying before they're thrown into operational combat. So, you know, men might have 12, 16, 20 hours on a Spitfire or a Hurricane or that sort of thing. But that doesn't mean it feeds into that popular image of almost, oh, you know, they're pretty much thrown into a Tiger Moth trainer and then all suddenly they're in a Spitfire or a Hurricane. It doesn't work like that. These men have obviously had to be competent enough to get their licenses to be experienced enough within flight to be able to handle a modern fighter like the Hurricane or the Spitfire. But we can't deny that their actual overall flying hours do decrease in training considerably. So in some cases, this is shortening certain top-up courses from four weeks to two weeks by August 1940. This is also the fact that at the beginning of a war, a pilot starts with about sort of 200 flying hours and then by the summer of 1940, this has shrunk to between 130 to 150. So that is going to have a big knock-on effect in how much your training has been refined. So we can't really dispute the fact that that is going to be stressful. And even just the case that if you have only got so many hours in a hurricane or a spitfire, and then suddenly you're meant to be taking it up into the skies and shooting down all of these German aircraft, you know, that is daunting and you're not getting the time that you should. But I think what's important to recognise in terms of training is also the type of training. So there is the issue of the fact that actually the BF-109 pilots do spend far more time in gunnery and they are taught to shoot properly. And this is an issue with the British and it's, it's picked up upon many times by veterans that in some cases they've managed to strafe a sandbag before they're into battle. And so it's areas like that where you start to see the discrepancies in training and where the British were not as well prepared as the Germans. But in some cases, British airmen were rushed away. They were meant to be going through the, you know, the operational training units. And in some cases, they were put closer to the front line and already having to participate earlier on because there isn't enough time. But they do still log those hours on the whole. 
Obviously, there were perhaps exceptions at really intense moments of the battle where suddenly, if you've not even really had the time to go through the operational training unit and you've been forced straight into an operational squadron, that does happen. But it's important to not see this almost like the 20 minutes of the Royal Flying Corps in, in the First World War. It's a similar myth that it seemed that everybody only had that, whereas every pilot's experience was very different. And they might have been lucky enough to fly in hurricanes and spitfires when they're at the operational training units and, and others weren't. So in some cases it was true, but not across the board as dramatically as it's often stated. Who was Britain's most successful pilot then during the Battle of Britain? Historians normally state that the most successful British pilot in terms of kills claimed in the Battle of Britain was Eric Locke. He was set at having 20 confirmed kills during the Battle of Britain with one probable, and he becomes what's known as a quadruple ace. A fighter pilot becomes an ace when he's got five confirmed victories. And of course, this was very common in the Battle of Britain. When you've got so many different sorties going at once, there were plenty of men that became aces. In some cases, they end up becoming double aces or triple aces, which is where we start to get towards 10 kills, 15 kills. And Locke really stands out because he is a quadruple ace, which means he has become an ace four times over, which shows you the absolutely insane achievements that he achieved. So he is technically the most successful British fighter pilot in the Battle of Britain. There are other pilots that have scored higher, and the one that scored the most was a Czech pilot, Josef Frantisek. But on the whole, Locke scored the highest number of confirmed kills in the Battle of Britain for any British pilot. What do we know about female contributions to the Battle of Britain? Even though women are not allowed to fly frontline combat aircraft by the time of the Battle of Britain, this starts to lift more in, in 1941, the next year, they make an invaluable contribution to the RAF at this time because not only have you got women in the Air Transport Auxiliary, which accepts its first female pilots in January 1940, and they are incredibly important in making sure that trainer aircraft and transport aircraft are ferried over to lots of different sites and RAF airfields during the Battle of Britain. But you've also got women in the Women's Auxiliary Air Force. And these are the plotters. These are the women who are in the filter room at RAF Bentley Priory. They are also in the operations room. And they are feeding through this real-time information of what's happening in the Battle of Britain through the Dowding system. The reason that is so important is because the WAF plotters are able to show how many aircraft are coming in, their rough height, their location, all of these different aspects of their composition, which makes the RAF far more knowledgeable in what it's coming up against and how many squadrons and groups it needs to get on the ready in order to make sure that the aerial invaders are repelled. So women there are incredibly valuable Within the ATA, because they are ferrying these transport aircraft, gliders, etc., they are taking pressure off of the male pilots that need to be doing these jobs. And of course, when the British are trying to get as many pilots up in the air as possible, it can be very easy to overlook the need for trainer aircraft, but you will not have any new pilots or any reserves without them. So as a result, women from the ATA are incredibly important during the Battle of Britain because of this, but also because they are logging wartime hours 
that will allow them to expand their experiences in the future. And as a result, they're able to start to move on to hurricanes and spitfires and four-engine heavy bombers later into the war. So the contributions of women at this point are incredibly important in making sure that the RAF is this well-oiled machine. Thank you. You've actually also answered a question from Sarah Allen 565 on Instagram as well. But Sarah's also asked about this significance of radar and the doubting system more widely. How useful was it? Radar is absolutely crucial to the defensive British victory in the Battle of Britain. To start off with, radar is a massive mind game for the Luftwaffe. So they are only able to be in the combat zone for 15 minutes with the BF-109s because they're having to conserve their fuel for the trip there and back over the English Channel. And as a result, they have to make sure that they are at the right place at the right time. But obviously, the issue for the Luftwaffe is that RAF Fighter Command is also often at the right place at the right time. And it causes a lot of frustration for them because they can't understand how they're being traced so well. Obviously, they've got their own forms of aircraft detection and radar and looking at all these different aspects, but it's not as sophisticated as the Dowding system, which has been painstakingly put together as an integrated air force system since the 1930s. Radar is vital for the British war effort because it's able to give them warning about 20 minutes in advance of where the aircraft are going to go. And when you're having to scramble within minutes, that advantage is absolutely vital. So as a result, radar is really important at knowing how many aircraft are coming over, roughly, which direction they're going in, what they are doing on the way back as well. And so that's really important. But of course, radar is only really effective out into the sea. You know, it's not all that helpful when the aircraft are too close in to the mainland. And so at that point, you're having to use the Observer Corps, which is a civilian organisation that's used for aircraft spotting and passing it on in order to make sure that you are filling the gaps in the system. But radar is so important because it gives that early real-time advantage And it does give that psychological impact to the Germans in terms of knowing that wherever they go, fighter commander on their tail. So we've spoken about it, but what was the Dowding system? The Dowding system really is the world's truly integrated air defence system. So it consists of the filter room, which basically looks at all of the incoming information that's coming from British radar, that's coming from the observer corps, that's coming from all of these different elements to make sure that they can truly gauge what RAF fighter commander dealing with. And as a result, it has been painstakingly built since the 1930s and it's been named after Air Chief Marshal Sir Hugh Dowding, who is the Commander-in-Chief of Fighter Command. And the reason it's so important is because it has so many different cogs that make the whole machine work and tick over. So because you've got the visual aid of the Observer Corps spotting aircraft manually once they're over inland, and you've also got radar of chain home and chain home low that are gauging how close the Luftwaffe is to Britain at different at different distances. 
And of course, you've got the WAF plotters who are keeping an eye on these different Luftwaffe squadrons. And then, of course, you have the plotters of the Women's Auxiliary Air Force who are making sure that the strength of both the British and the German aircraft are being tracked in real time. So ultimately, the importance of the Dowding system is that it is connecting all the dots of the Battle of Britain, of the Luftwaffe's offensive, what it's going for, and ultimately what Britain can throw up in response to that. In all this, did weather play a key part in defence or attack? Could perhaps a storm allow a bit of a breather for pilots? Weather played a really important role in how the Battle of Britain unfolded. So obviously, as we know from living here, this island is very temperamental in its weather mood changes. So this, of course, was a great obstacle for the Luftwaffe because... It's not even just a case of visibility and trying to find your your target or trying to locate enemy fighters coming in. That's a key part of it. But it's also the fact that you are very limited in the time you have over as Luftwaffe air crews. So you have not only got to do this long haul English Channel flight, even from France, which is making it easier, but because you've only got that limited time in the combat zone, you cannot afford to be drifting. You cannot afford to be getting lost in fog or in storms or anything like that. So as a result, it's rare that the weather is so bad that it stops absolutely everything. But there's certainly a paring down of Luftwaffe numbers on certain days and during certain raids because ultimately it's it's just not safe enough, particularly if you're flying in certain formations and, you know, you've got to be trying to not bump into each other if you can barely see out of your cockpit and that sort of thing. But mainly just not wanting to waste their resources and it affects everything because if you can't see to shoot your opponent properly you've only got you know like sort of 10-15 seconds worth of ammunition so you've got to make sure you're hitting it exactly where it needs to be and you've got the fear of course with things like fog that you can be running straight into an enemy aircraft even though you're trying to get close to shoot him down but also when you start going into the blitz and you start looking at nighttime raids as opposed to daytime raids that's also a difference in the operational conditions that has a great impact on Luftwaffe morale. I mean, there's some pilots that actually far prefer flying in night because they kind of see the cover of darkness as a bit of a, a protective shield. But there's others that hate it because they hate the dark because they can't see everything easily. And the only time something starts being illuminated is if they suddenly see anti-aircraft fire coming towards them and that sort of thing. So as a result, you know, it's weather is a, is a big, big thing. The conditions in which you are flying are very important in the Battle of Britain. You mentioned the Blitz, and we've had so many questions from listeners about this aspect in particular. But I reckon we should start with a question from IMO Emma 28 on Instagram, who has said, why did Hitler change his strategy and move towards civilian bombing? That's a really important aspect to consider because it's often a really strongly held myth that it is Hitler that calls for the bombing of British cities. And it's a completely understandable assumption because when you see the devastation that's wreaked at Rotterdam or Warsaw or other places, it's really easy to assume that, oh, Hitler must have just really enjoyed bombing lots of different civilians and their cities. And as a result, it's very tempting to think, oh, Hitler just turned towards attacking British cities for the fun of it or, you know, or if he felt there was some sort of strategy there. But ultimately, it's Goering who believes that hitting at British cities is the right way to go. You know, he's getting impatient at how long it's taking to knock out British radar systems. He's also thinking that 
the RAF is more subdued than it actually is through poor Luftwaffe intelligence. And as a result, to him, it seems more logical to go for British cities because he thinks, now, if we can hit at the heart of British defence, if we can start to make their civilians want to beg the politicians to sue for peace, that's the way to go. So Hitler really, in this situation, he's kind of forced into it because... Of course, it's a great propaganda coup for him because he can say, now we're striking at the heart of London, of Birmingham, of Coventry. And he really sort of feeds into that rhetoric of, you know, if they drop so many thousands of pounds of bombs, then we will do it this many times more. But the Blitz comes around because the Luftwaffe accidentally drops some bombs in London. And of course, Churchill green lights this retaliatory blow against Berlin. So... Hitler is trying to save face by changing the strategy, but he's pretty much following Goering's orders. Susie1340 on Twitter has asked about how crucial this decision was in moving German forces towards London and away from the airfields. Is there any truth in the idea of intensifying the Blitz, distracting the German forces from beating the RAF, so to speak? It's certainly true that the Luftwaffe switching to British cities did give RAF Fighter Command some time, some breathing space, some respite from the intensification of Luftwaffe attacks towards the end of August 1940. So, Around the 31st of August 1940, that is the time where the RAF is at its weakest and it is being pounded into submission by the Luftwaffe. So it's having to make sure that it's not only replacing the pilots it's losing and the aircraft it's losing, but also trying to repair all of its amenities and installations. So making sure that airfields are fixed, making sure that aircraft production isn't affected and all of those different areas. But the fact that the Luftwaffe then changes towards those British cities, it means that fighter command's demands have changed. You know, they, of course, they do need to be having the, their night fighters getting involved in the defence. But those that are flying in the day, they do get that time to recuperate and to re-strengthen. And this was one of the really key areas in which the RAF was particularly skilled. So, it's interesting that we focus so much on new aircraft production and the you know the, the hurricanes and the spitfires that are rolling off the production lines brand new and shiny for the battle of britain but in fact you know about 30 to 35% of of the aircraft in the battle of britain were ones that had been repaired and put straight back up so it's really important to bear in mind that that breathing space allows more aircraft to to be replaced and also to bear in mind that the Luftwaffe doesn't really have a reserve in terms of both pilots and aircraft it's flying with what it's got pretty much so it's definitely true that it gives the RF that breathing space it needs in order to help recuperate a bit of course that it causes its own problems because then you've got the blitz and all of the issues that come from there but it means that by the time you get to Battle of Britain Day in the middle of September 1940, the RAF is in a state where it can throw up bigger numbers of, of sort of big wing formations in order to prove to them very, very carefully that no, the RAF is not down to its last few serviceable fighters, as Goering believed. So what were the key factors in the outcome of the battle. We've had listeners ask about home advantage for the Brits. We've also had about the loss of German planes during the Battle of France. Did these play a role at all? All of those different aspects had such a bearing on the way the pendulum swinged in the Battle of Britain. So on the one hand, the home advantage cannot be disputed. It was so important in terms of when men have bailed out 
in RAF Fighter Command, in most cases, they are either in, well, friendly waters, so to speak, but obviously that has its own dangers. But overall, they would be over friendly land. Whereas the Luftwaffe, of course, if they have to bail out, it's either a horrible watery death in the sea or it's capture by the British and they're out of the war. So that's an incredibly important part of pretty much exacerbating the issue that the Luftwaffe had with trying to train enough pilots is when they lose their own pilots, that's a huge issue, especially as they put a lot of their experienced flight instructors into the Battle of Britain, which is understandable because, you know, they want to make sure that they've got their best hotshots in the sky. But then you have the issue of they're not there to train the next pilots and then the pilots that they've got, they're already struggling with. So, In that regard, that is a really difficult thing for the Luftwaffe to overcome. We also cannot dispute the psychological impact of the fact that the Luftwaffe were having to fly over the channel. So they very much state that that was one of the main hurdles before you even start contending with spitfires and hurricanes and all of these different aspects of fighter command and its defense system. Just going over that, the Luftwaffe had to start banning the airmen that took handguns with them in case they ended up ditching in the channel because some were wanting to to end it all rather than to risk drowning. So of course that really caused a lot of anxiety and fear for the Luftwaffe in a way that of course the British may end up in the drink but they're not a million miles from home in the same way that that the Luftwaffe would be. So that home advantage is important. Obviously having more awareness of how the weather can shift easily is really important and making sure that they are concentrating all of their efforts in the right places. The Luftwaffe has to be a little bit more experimental in finding where everything is, whereas the British, when you're defensive, you have an automatic advantage in terms of you're only having to expend whatever is needed to match the offensive power. So as a result, it's on the Luftwaffe to try and force the hand, basically. Although that is also an advantage to some degree because they get to decide when and where and how they attack. So that has a great impact in terms of how that influences the battle. It's also true that the Luftwaffe does suffer considerable losses in the Battle of France. So even though the Luftwaffe and the Allied Air Forces at that time are pretty much even in operational fighters. Of course, the Luftwaffe does tend to have a great portion of of modern fighters of its BF-109s, and they have certain points during the Battle of France where they have their own fighter pilots day in a way that's similar to, we think, of the Battle of Britain day in May, where there's absolute triumph for the German fighter pilots. But, you know, there are considerable losses inflicted over the Battle of France. And of course, there are personnel who are trying to deal with all these issues. You know, there's some that have come up through learning through Lufthansa. So they've flown in commercial airlines and they've got their own jargon and terms and all of these sorts of things. And so they're causing each other panic because sometimes you can have the Luftwaffe trying to say pull instead of press. And so it means the aircraft's going up and not down and that sort of thing. So they've got their own issues to deal with. They're not all top experts from the Spanish Civil War in themselves. So the losses that are incurred in France and also some of those operational challenges they do feed on into the Battle of Britain. And the Luftwaffe is already feeling tired at that point. It's it's very common to sort of think about, you know, seeing Junkers 87 Stukas tearing up the beaches of Dunkirk and thinking that the Luftwaffe is having an easy time. But 
they're seeing it differently. They're not just seeing that happening, but they're seeing all the anti-aircraft batteries manned by the French and the fear of British and French patrols. So we shouldn't be just looking at the Germans coming over and being complete and utter victors. They are also suffering their own uh, traumas, their own losses, their own exhaustion and fatigue at the Battle of France as they go into the Battle of Britain. Now, this is a bit of a counterfactual question. Had Germany actually triumphed in the Battle of Britain, was Britain in genuine danger of invasion? Britain would have certainly been in more danger of invasion if the RAF had been wiped out and not just fighter command, but also bomber command and coastal command. Then there would have been less challenge to the amphibious landing by the Wehrmacht. So, for instance, you wouldn't have been able to take out the German fighters that are strafing important parts of the coastline and defences and things. You wouldn't have been able to take out the bombers that are subduing British defences. You wouldn't have been able to stop all of the transport aircraft um, that are dropping Fallschirmjäger or paratroopers over Britain or indeed the reconnaissance units of the Luftwaffe. So they would be getting a far better picture of the island that they are invading. And as a result, that would have certainly made Operation Sea Lion more likely to have been attempted. And of course, it can't happen unless it is attempted. So to that degree, it would have made the situation more dangerous for Britain, certainly. But when we actually look at what Britain then would have been left with, it still would not have been easy for the German Wehrmacht because the reason that the German Luftwaffe is so cutting edge, with, with certain exceptions, but is cutting edge as it goes into war, is actually because it's been taking some of the resources from the Kriegsmarine, or the German Navy. And as a result, you know, it's actually quite underpowered. And we think about the U-boat menace, but really the U-boats wouldn't have been much use closer to the mainland of Britain. It's not really, they're not really meant to be operating in shallow waters. So you would have had that problem. You would have also had the issue of the fact that if Luftwaffe aircraft are trying to come over and bomb British shipping at night, we're only thinking about the summer, the autumn of 1940. And there's so many navigational aids that just have not been, some haven't even been developed, let alone perfected. And when you think of the actual logistics of that, and also so the fact that you do get this real bunkering down of a defending country, then I think it is unlikely that Sea Lion would have succeeded, particularly as within France, within the two phases in the in the Battle of France, you had Falgelb, which was the case yellow, and that's the initial stages of taking France, Belgium, the Netherlands, etc. And then you had Falrot, which was case red, and that's the point where the Luftwaffe, the army and the Kriegsmarine are trying to sort of polish off and finish up the invasion of France. But the French end up inflicting particularly heavy casualties in that stage, even though it is the most dire situation. So we have to bear in mind that it wouldn't just be the Germans trying to invade Britain. It would be the Germans trying to invade Fortress Britain and trying to deal with the men that had been able to get back from Dunkirk, the Home Guard, all of these different aspects as well. And as a result, I, I simply think it would have just been too difficult. There's just too many obstacles. But that's not to say that it wouldn't have been dangerous for the British. And indeed, you know, 
People often see sea lion as sort of being a, a half idea of the Germans, that they were never truly serious. But it was rumoured towards the end of his life in the bunker in Berlin that Hitler had regretted not trying Operation Sea Lion. And if the RAF had been subdued for that, then it certainly would have been more of a possibility. How soon after the Battle of Britain was it viewed as this sort of triumphant tide-turning moment? Was that an immediate reaction or is that just how we perhaps view it today? The Battle of Britain is immediately lionised in Britain. And even by 1941, the Air Ministry is publishing a pamphlet that can't sell out quick enough. You know, they put out this official history of the Battle of Britain in 1941 and they referred to it as this great battle, this epic battle. And there's even readers in newspapers that are writing in letters at their frustration that they can't get a copy of it. It sells out pretty much immediately. Within newspapers, one of the main ways that the Battle of Britain starts to be mythologised as this real battle against the odds is by politicians because they've got all to gain to be showing how well Britain is doing in the Second World War. And Ernest Bevan basically says in the spring of 1941, you know, he says that it is this epic, glorious fight. He says that the RAF fighter pilots were 15 to 1 against the Luftwaffe. It is this real gargantuan fight and that ultimately it is pretty much short of a miracle that Britain was able to come through it. And of course, this is testimony to the skills of the RAF fighter pilots. So it is pretty much confirmed straight away. And what's interesting as well is there is a little bit of a difference between how the men of fighter command and how the men of bomber command are treated, especially straight after the war. So there is one parliamentary secretary who is very much against aerial bombardment by Britain during the Second World War. But when he is asked, as a later Secretary of State for Air, if he can give the updated figures of the Battle of Britain towards the end of the war, he is absolutely gushing of the praise of fighter command and says, you know, that we owe them so much, they truly are the few, and this kind of thing. And, and this is happening in 1947, so two years after the war ends. And it is very true that sort of the two sides are seen quite differently and Bomber Command's role within the Battle of Britain is relegated quite early on and of course the few ends up being more attached to the fighter pilots. So yeah, it's incredibly important in terms of being presented within Britain as this epic battle that's been overcome, not just for British morale and for a blow against German morale, but also to show the Americans who are not in the war until Pearl Harbor the next year, that Britain is still in the fight and therefore the Allies are still in the fight. And so it's a cause that could be worth joining in the future. As a final question to you, to sum up what we've been talking about, what are three things that listeners should take away from our chat today? I think what is perhaps most important to take away from this chat is firstly that the Battle of Britain is a battle of variables. So it's incredibly easy for us to sort of try and pit it in black and white to go BF-109 versus Spitfire or those sort of aspects, this many training hours versus this many training hours. But it's incredibly important to recognise that there is a lot of nuance to the Battle of Britain. And because of the fact that it is such a popular tale, particularly within British wartime mythology, it is very prone to a lot of oversimplification. So I would say that is the first thing to consider when thinking about the Battle of Britain. The second is also to look at 
what the Battle of Britain meant to contemporaries at the time. So it's very easy for us, particularly as historians, to say, oh, sea line perhaps probably would have never worked. It probably would have been too difficult. It perhaps would have never truly materialised because it's simply just too large an undertaking. But what we've got to bear in mind is that it didn't feel like that for British contemporaries. For them, it is a fight to the death or a potential fight to the death. For them, it is very much bunkering in and protecting their livelihoods, their homes, their families, their country and their way of life. And as a result, you know, we have to be careful to recognise that even with us, with the comfort of hindsight, even if we can say, actually, you know, it may not have happened, we have to really recognise the skill it took to make sure it couldn't happen. And also the fact that these men, these women were giving so much blood, sweat and tears in order to make sure that Operation Sea Line could never become a reality. So that's the second really important point. And I think the third point links into that, which is this is a story of people as well, because it is very, very easy to get lost in the technology, you know, to go into all of those different sort of niche interests in aircraft, in armament, all of these different aspects. But what we've got to bear in mind is that the bombs and the bullets, the aircraft, all of these different aspects, they are actually operated by people and people are flawed. So it doesn't matter how good your technology is. It has still been made by people. You can have guns that jam on you. You can have aircraft that are falling to pieces. There are all of these different aspects that can go wrong. And so it's important to look at the human story because only by looking at that can we see how the operational story unfolded. That was Victoria Taylor an aviation historian specialising in the Royal Air Force and the Luftwaffe. In 2022, Victoria completed her PhD on the Luftwaffe at the University of Hull. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 